Hello everybody. Today we're going to be observing a telescope with Professor Matthew Bales. He's an astrophysicist who also founded the Center of Astrophysics and Supercomputing at Swinburne. We talk about aliens, black holes, and a bunch of other things. I hope you guys enjoy this. I'm actually very happy today. <laughs> Professor Matthew, first of all, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much actually for being here. And I want to start with uh, congratulating you for winning the Shores Prize. And just please um, start with that. Like, how long have you been preparing for that award? Yeah, you don't really prepare for the Shaw Prize. Yeah. I don't think you're allowed to be nominated. A bunch of dignitaries just sit around and try and work out what is happening in astrophysics research at the moment and mm -hmm. is worthy of the Shaw Prize. Mm -hmm. So there's one prize a year for all of astronomy. And um, what I did for it, it was a long time ago, um, not super long, but back in 2007 I was in the Parkes Radio Telescope mm -hmm. with an old student of mine called Duncan Lorimer and I said to him, Dunk, have you discovered anything interesting lately? Mm -hmm. And um, Dunk said, yeah, actually I do have a source I can't quite understand. Um, have you ever seen anything so bright in the telescope that, it appears in what you might term two pixels. It only has a 13-pixel camera. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> um, and he'd found this source that had appeared in two pixels simultaneously. Mm. And he said, have you ever seen anything like that? And I said, yeah, actually, I, I did once find a, a neutron star um, with a similar signature. And he said, well, this thing has what's called a dispersion measure of you know, 375, which means there's a lot of electrons between us and the source and like a ridiculously large number of electrons. Don't ask me how many because I don't know. But um, when light goes past electrons, it actually gets slowed down mm. and the amount it's slowed down depends on the wavelength. And at optical wavelengths, it's imperceptible. Mm. But at radio wavelengths, it actually leads to a, a time delay. Hmm. And in the same way that radio stations have different wavelengths or frequencies, like 774, you know, that's 774 hmm. kilohertz. In the FM band, you have like 100 megahertz. We observe usually between about 1,000 megahertz and say 1,500 megahertz. Wow. And over that, band the the delay because of a dispersion measure of 375 is is about a second a little bit less and um in the band we use which is a little bit less than that um the delay i think was around a third of a second mm -hmm. so um he'd observed this source and it hit the telescope at 1500 megahertz and then it had sort of drifted down in frequency to about 1,200 megahertz and that took about a third of a second. Um, but he didn't have great tools to, to do a thorough diagnosis of it. When we're talking about, like, what year is this? This is 2007. We're sitting in the Parks dish, which mm -hmm. uh, I'm currently observing with uh, yeah. via my laptop. Yes. Um, and we were actually doing another survey we were on the same project and we were sharing observing duties and you often you know, chat. Um, but going back to the, the particular thing, that, that had actually been observed six years earlier and it was only 
being reprocessed in a particular way six years later. So he'd had a summer student, David Narkovic, I think it was, or Nankovic, um, and David for his summer project had been told, we're looking for impulsive bursts of radio emission mm-hmm. um, in our galaxy and other yes. galaxies. Please, if you see anything that looks like like this, um, you know, let me know. And the student had come up to him and said, oh, I've got you know, this interesting thing. It's got a very high signal-to-noise ratio. And they also knew that what's called the dispersion measure, how many electrons, you know, was quite high. Um, mm. But they hadn't sort of thoroughly diagnosed it. And mm. it turns out a lot of people were looking for these sources, mm. including... Um, Duncan's wife, who was also a radio astronomer, Maura McLaughlin, and she had found and only published about a year before a, an interesting new class of objects in our own galaxy called um, rotating radio transients. They call them RATs. RATs. Yeah, and these are just things in our galaxy that emit flashes of radio waves and then sort of turn off for 20 minutes mm. and then do it again. And so... Duncan and Mora had had this idea, well, there's this old survey of the nearest galaxy to ours, to us, the the small Magellanic cloud. Mm. Let's get the summer student to process that data and see if he can find anything. And he he did find this stuff. Um, But their diagnostic tools weren't great. So our group had also been looking for these things unsuccessfully, as it turned out. And so I had all these tools ready to go. I said, oh, actually, I've, I've got this tool and I could tell you the power as a function of frequency. Mm. So we downloaded the data and we cut out a little bit where this signal was um, right at the end of a very long observation. I think it was a couple of hours and just right at the end, this little radio flash had occurred. And we plotted it and it was just this remarkable... Um, sweep of radio emission that had lasted about five milliseconds. Um, it started off at, you know, channel 1500, if you like, mm-hmm. and it swept down to channel 1200. 1200 yes. And if it's real, it should um, be proportional to one over the frequency squared. So the delay, uh, if you double the frequency, it should take um, only a quarter of the delay. Mm. And you could look at this thing and it just had this amazing... Sweep. It was now called the Lorimer Burst. There's even a band named the Lorimer Burst, Burst. which is kind of fun. Um, and we just like almost fell off our chairs and it was like, oh, my God, that looks, looks so amazing. And a, a, a sort of a veteran radio astronomer knows what a radio pulsar's pulse looks like. So mm. radio pulsars are these neutron stars that give off very regular flashes of, of radio emission. And some of them are a bit unusual when they give off what's called a giant pulse. Mm. So mm. they have a normal sort of pulse, but then every now and then they sort of go bam and you get something a 10, 100, maybe a 1,000 times brighter. And this looked exactly like they did. So I looked at it and I just thought, this has got to be real. And we looked at both of the pixels that, that had the data in it mm. and they both looked exactly the same and that was encouraging because radio waves are not really like light where most of the light falls in a pixel on your camera. Mm. Radio waves have what's called a diffraction pattern and they kind of smear out over the many pixels and the amplitude or the, how bright it is depends on how far away you are from the source. And we're like, wow, this is amazing. We've seen it in two beams and the 
the telescope actually had 13 beams. It has one in the middle of the telescope and it has six in a circle and another six around that. And they're arranged um, in this sort of hexagonal pattern. And we'd seen it in two of the pixels but none of the others. So that's a bit weird and we tried processing the other data and then we realised that one of the pixels, the data had been cut out and replaced by a random noise Hmm. by our software that identifies sources of interference. And Hmm. so we turned off the... That software is you know, it's just a, what you call a switch in the Unix program and don't replace anything, just give us the raw data. Raw data. Mm-hmm. And when we did that, we were amazed to see that that pixel was actually, it was so bright it had saturated the receiver mm. and our software said, oh, anything that bright we must either already know about or it can't be real, so we'll get rid of it. So it had deleted it. Mm. And when we turned it back on, we could see that this source was like stupendously bright Mm. and would have had a signal to noise well over 100 if we hadn't had these saturation issues. And so it was actually in three pixels. And then, you know, some of my former students and postdocs years later found that you could actually see it in a fourth pixel as well. Mm. And so it was this flash of radio waves. And I'm used to working in our galaxy Mm. for my research. And so I didn't really know in my head how far away this thing must be and we kind of calculated it. It turned out to be a billion light years away. It was like, oh, my God. And to give your listeners a a scale, you know, our galaxy to the galactic centre, it's about 20,000, maybe 25,000 light years. And this thing's a billion light years away. away. And it's like, oh, God, this is a trillion times brighter than pulsars and neutron stars in our galaxy. This could be amazing. This could be, and I just couldn't sleep at night. I was like lying awake, and I was thinking, "My like, God, oh, there might be things out there that give off these amazingly bright bursts of radio emission." Mm. And if you could ever trace it to what's called the host galaxy, you could use the redshift of the host galaxy to weigh the universe because it's the burst becomes an electron counter. So mm. every time it goes past an electron, yeah, it gets delayed by a little bit more. And so you can count the number of electrons between you and the source. It turns out most um, atoms in the universe are actually ionized. Yes. And so you can instantly just weigh the universe, which is amazing. But why are these, why is measuring these solar beams so important to us? Oh, the fast radio burst? Yes. Look, it's very, very fundamental science. It's it's not like it's going to be a new communication system or Mm -hmm. anything. the technology behind it does have other applications. So when I first came back to Australia as an employed scientist, I was sitting a bit like we're between us and I said to the guy opposite me, what are you working on? He said, oh, I'm trying to make Ethernet work wirelessly. <laughs> and I thought, oh, well, that would never work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I said, what do you have to do? And he said, oh, we're trying to build something the size of a credit card that would mean you wouldn't have to pl- mm. plug your laptop mm-hmm. in. You could just do it all wirelessly and access the internet because we think that's going to be huge. And I thought, well, you've got no chance. <laughs> and those guys went on to invent yeah. Wi-Fi. Yeah. Oh. I, I stayed with astronomy. Um, but as to your question, you know, what, what use does it do? It Look, it's nice to understand the universe you live in mm. and it's actually incredibly hard to work out the number of atoms in the universe. You can look Mm. at stars and galaxies and whatever, 
but actually a very direct measure of how many mm. atoms in the universe has historically been very hard to do. Mm. But fast radio bursts have enabled that. Mm. The the universe is such a never-ending puzzle of uh, questions. Does that do you sort of uh, thrive on that that sort of um, well? There's more knowledge to be found in this universe. Yeah, in fact, I think um, what motivated me to do science in the first place was really just to be able to understand how the universe works. Mm. Because I was very frustrated as a child not being mm. understand why things work the way they did. Mm. I remember quite vividly, actually, I used to walk to school and in between my school and home, there was a very major road in South Australia where I was growing up. And it was actually a bit of a pain to go to the pedestrian crossing. It mm. used to add like an extra few minutes, minutes to yeah. my trip. So I thought, oh, if I cross this major road, and I, I did start walking to school when I was five years old. So I kind of I wasn't very old. <laughs> um, you know, I could save a lot of time. And I, I tried to work out, well, I didn't want to get hit by a car. And what, why is it that we can see cars? Yeah. So I kind of asked my parents, why can we see cars? And they said, well, because of your eyes. I kind of got that. Mm. But, you know. How do your eyes could, work? <laughs> well, could it ever be the case that <laughs> the car wouldn't be, would be invisible? Mm. You know, I asked my teachers and at primary schools in those days, no teachers had <laughs> science education. So nobody knew about photons or light mm. or eyes and irises and so I found that very frustrating, but I was also sort of in mortal terror that maybe if I crossed the road I might get hit by a car mm. I can't see. So I've always sort of wanted to, to understand the universe and um, I was also brought up in a quite an evangelical Baptist home mm. where I was told that there was this sort of mystical God that you could pray to and he would like intervene in your life and I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. Um, and I didn't really find it very satisfactory mm. so I knew there was this sort of this magic stuff and there was sort of science and I just ended up um, wanting to be a scientist and um, that was um, something that panned out in the end but um, I just really wanted to understand the universe I ended up being a physicist and here I am. Carl Sagan said that we're made of star stuff how true do you think that statement is? Oh, it's incredibly true. Um, in fact, it, it it's remarkable what we do know about the universe. And, you know, I used to, people would tell me how old the universe was and I used to think, well, that's crap. Yeah, how mm -hmm. can you know? Mm -hmm. But once you kind of do your education and, and learn these things, there's mm -hmm. many different ways to kind of date the universe. They all kind of agree. It's all kind of incredible. And um, there is a, a scientific basis to a lot of what we know. Um, it's it's hard to explain it in in a single podcast, mm. but um, it is kind of reassuring that you know you make all these predictions, and there's many ways to kind of infer the the weight of the universe. And it's lovely to be able to use fast radio bursts to kind of confirm some of these other theories. Mm. There's no reason they all have to mm. agree, but mm. they kind yeah. of do. It's kind of incredible. Talk to us about neutron stars. What significance they have to us understanding the universe? Yeah, so they're fantastic laboratories. They're kind of naturally occurring laboratories. 
Neutron um, stars, are you referring to them as laboratories? Well, I, I treat, like, the reason I do astronomy is because I want to be a physicist. Mm. And the sort of physics I want to do is impossible to do on the Earth. Mm. So if you want to measure strong gravity, it doesn't matter where you go in the world, the gravity is never more than about 9.8 metres per second squared acceleration. Mm. Um, neutron stars, on the other hand, weigh half a million Earths. Half a million Earths. Yeah. So if they were the same size as the Earth, the gravitational field would be 500,000 times hip stronger. But they're not the same size as Earth. They're only actually about 20 kilometres in diameter. Hmm. And the gravitational force is 1 over the radius squared. The radius of the Earth is about... 6,380 kilometres, I think it is. The radius of neutron star is 10. So you've got another factor of 638 squared on top of the half a million. Mm. So you've got this phenomenal gravitational, gravitational field. field. And if you want to explore gravity and whether Einstein was right or not, they're fantastic for doing that. But the, the reason they're so small is because instead of having normal matter with a, a sort of a nucleus and an electron cloud, um, the electrons and protons have been forced together under pressure to form neutrons and there's no interatomic spacing anymore. So everything collapses down so the neutrons mm. are literally kind of touching each other. And it ends up with this thing which is, you know, half a million Earth masses, you know, less than 0.16% of the radius mm. and a little bit in the same way as like when a ballerina jumps up in the air and spins and brings their arms in, they spin more quickly. Mm. Mm. If you take a star and you squash it down to something 10 kilometres, the star spins very quickly. quickly yes. So when neutron stars are f first born, they spin at about 100 hertz, 100 times a second. Wow. And they also have this other quite beautiful feature that the currents in a neutron star flow very easily because the neutron star in interior is what's called a superfluid. Mm. It's like a, a wire with no resistance. So they can support magnetic fields that are very, very strong because magnetic fields are generated by moving uh, subatomic particles, or electrons usually. Um, and so in a neutron star, the magnetic field is incredibly strong. So a fridge magnet is about 100 gauss. Mm. Whereas a neutron star when it's born is about 10 to the 12 gauss, so about a trillion gauss. When you spin a fridge magnet, you can't feel anything. Mm. But if you spin a, something that's a trillion times more powerful, it actually hates it and it, it gives off electromagnetic radiation. And that it's, it's so powerful that you get what's called pair production, you get creation of positrons and electrons, that's matter and antimatter. That's accelerated across the t 10 to the 15 volt uh, electric field. Mm. These things soon traveling at the speed of light, they're moving in a changing magnetic field and you get all this sort of stray radio emission. And so they act a bit like a lighthouse beam that sw sweeps around um, the universe. And if you get a big radio telescope like, like the Parks one I'm using yeah. at the moment, mm. you can point it at it. And what happens is the detector gets a little pulse once mm. per rotation period. 
And uh, the neutron star we're observing today, I think, spins at about 300 times a second. 300 times a second. Can you explain why do they exist in pairs? Yeah, so stars are not made on their own mm. generally. So the conditions in a galaxy to make a, a gas, cloud, gas cloud collapse are massive and they tend to form like 10,000 stars at once. Mm. Because the cloud has a little bit of spin and has mm. something called angular momentum and to get rid of that angular momentum it needs to create things that are spinning. And if a gas cloud spins it can split in two and you end up with two stars going around each other and sometimes you get two stars going around each other and then a further one third. Uh, out, further out, it's mm. called a three-body system, or you can get two pairs. And mm. in the cores of these gas clouds, all of these things end up interacting and they spit out stars and they can break apart the binaries. So you end up sometimes with a star like the sun, mm. which is just sitting around on its own. Most of the time, though, you get what's called a binary with two stars going around each other or, or higher-order systems. Mm. So solitary stars are more rare but if, if you have a big star and a little star going around each other, the big star can sometimes blow up and the binary gets disrupted and you just get a, a single star. So whether or not our sun once had a friend, um, who knows? So let's talk about that. what we're doing right now is that we're observing. What are we observing at this moment? Well, at the moment we're parked because there's a very strong windstorm at, at parks and it's too dangerous to... Hmm. Tip the dish over. Yes. Um, we would be observing a, a star. If I just go to the um, control panel here, it's got the romantic name of J1036 minus 8317. <laughs> well, that's, that's quite catchy, I think. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're trying to measure how much it weighs. Mm. And one way you can do that is to watch it go round another star well what would happen if you know that how much is does it weigh yeah so <laughs> we don't know how closely neutron stars are squished together in yes. the cores of these neutron stars mm. and that is determined by something called the neutron equation of state well the equation of state of nuclear matter it's an equation which basically relates how dense something is for a given mass and it's a little bit unknown it's sort of unknown to about a factor of two maybe mm. a little bit less than that um, and if you can weigh neutron stars that is part of the thing if you can get the radius of the neutron star as well mm. that's the second ingredient and then you can go oh cool this is how big a neutron star is that is a particular mass so you need masses and you need radii our group do the masses and then there's some other people that do the radii using X-ray satellites. Wow. <laughs> you started the Swinburne Center of... Astrophysics and Supercomputing. Astrophysics and Supercomputing. So all this data that, was, that you guys are recording and receiving, of course, needs computing. And when you say supercomputer, what is a supercomputer and now... We're in this shift of technology where we have quantum computing. So for, please explain what is a supercomputer 
and then if you know anything about quantum computing. Okay. Um, as if we're 10-year-olds. <laughs> as if we're 10-year-olds. Right. I'll, I'll give you two answers to what Please. a supercomputer is. Because look, because the problem is what was a supercomputer 30 years ago is now like an iPhone. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, a supercomputer is generally thought of as something that maybe has a thousand times as much power mm. as a kind of like a laptop or something. So the latest Swinburne supercomputer has about 12,000 CPU cores. Mm. Um, each of those cores on average has an access to memory, which I think is about four gigabytes. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it has a 20 petabyte disk system, so that's 20,000 terabytes, terabytes of disk. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, all of the computers are connected by what's called a low latency, high bandwidth interconnect, which can transmit data at about 200 gigabits a second. <laughs> Um, it's all very hot. You of know, course. It's typically 100 kilowatts when it's running. Mm. Um, we do run on green energy at Swinburne as part mm-hmm. of our university policy. Mm-hmm. Costs a bit more, but it's, it means we can feel less guilty. So that would be what you'd think of as a supercomputer. Super you know, it, your average sort of desktop might have four cores mm-hmm. or eight cores. You know, this has got 12,000. It's also got 80 graphics processing units um, which are very good at machine learning and each of those has like 2,000 cores um, as well. So they're very good at doing massively parallel problems Um, but you tend to log onto the supercomputer, you put together a script and you sort of say run this program, this program and that program it sends it to something called the batch queue and then it goes, oh, yeah, you want two hours of compute time, you want mm-hmm. 88 cores, I mm-hmm. can fit you in next Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And then the job runs. But sometimes the queue might be empty and you get on straight away. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what I think of as a supercomputer. But I also think a supercomputer is a fantastic way to, to get money. So many years ago, Swinburne wanted to recruit me mm-hmm. and... Um, I thought, well, if I tell them I'm an astronomer, they'll think, well, it's just you staring into space. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I actually want to set up a supercomputer department. Mm, yes. I go, well, wow, that's what a University of Technology needs. Mm-hmm. So we came up with the name, the Centre for Astrophysics and Supercomputing. Supercomputing. And yes. at first it was me and a couple of students and mm. one of my colleagues, Margaret Mazzolini, and um, one what we call postdoc, somebody with a PhD. Already, uh, now there's over 100 people at the Swinburne Centre for Astrophysics and Supercomputing. I I stopped being the director over 10 years ago now, but mm-hmm. I'm still a member of the department. Um, and so, you know, supercomputers are a good excuse to get money, but it the supercomputer is actually central to the research being undertaken at Swinburne across many departments. Mm. And one of the great things our state government did for us during COVID was actually realised the universities were hurting and they asked for infrastructure requests and uh, they funded the latest supercomputer. So we just turned that on the other day and it, it's fantastic. It's like you know, 10 times more powerful than our old one. Wow. Now, how does that look like in front of 
quantum computing? Yeah, so quantum computing is um, kind of interesting technological development. It's It has something called qubits, which mm. are kind of like quantum bits, which instead of being a sort of one and zero like we have in a normal computer, a, a more sort of tangled, mm. I don't fully understand them. I know mm. it's a fantastic way to get money at the moment. I think they're very good at things like secure tra um, transmission between two quantum computers. So if you want to send information, mm. if you send it out over the internet, um, it goes off in a, what's called packets and it's easy to intercept. Mm. And With a quantum message, um, it can only be received by one um, other computer and you know if it's been intercepted. Mm. Um, so they probably have applications in this, in certain domains around security and so on. They'd be absolutely useless at finding fast radio bursts or pulsars at the moment. Mm. But maybe in the future they'll be will be better. But can't they do calculations much faster? Would that be an application to astrophysics? Look, there may be some applications in astrophysics that would benefit greatly, hmm. but I, I doubt I will see a quantum computer in Anytime my lab soon. before I retire mm -hmm. that we're using, um, partly just because of the nature of what we're doing. I mean, it's certainly an exciting frontier. Mm. Um and it might be that we look back, you know, in 50 years' time and go, wow, that was the most amazing investment we ever made. But just at the moment, if somebody said, here, Matthew, here's a free quantum computer, I wouldn't really know what to do with it. Mm. I mean, I might uh, show it off to people. <laughs> in fact, well, I'm part of a, another research centre, although I'm not the director of the Swinburne Centre, I'm part of something called Osgrav, which is the... Mm. ARC Centre of Excellence for Gravitational Wave Discovery and um, one of our colleagues, uh, David Blair in Perth, is working with Jingbo Wang also in Perth and they just got money for something called Quantum Girls and I think they've got some quantum computers and they're going to get girls and other kind of minorities and whatever excited about science and go around schools and we're, we're having our nat national launch for that. Mm. I think um, Tuesday after the long weekend up in Canberra at the Shine Dome. Mm. So <clears throat> please tickle our brains with some stories that what keep, are there any questions and any phenomenons in astrophysics that keep you up at night that you still haven't found answers to? Yeah, I mean, there is, um, there's things that worry me. <laughs> more from a philosophical were you yeah like yeah. if you could change the the ratio of the mass of the electron to the mass of the proton mm. or there's certain fundamental constants which don't have, seem to have any great reason for being a particular value and if you fiddled with them too much you'd have no life anywhere mm. uh you know if gravity was 10 times stronger you wouldn't be able to Live, I mean, it, it's kind of quite disturbing how finely tuned <coughs> this planet is. Yeah, perfect. Seems to be. It's like good luck. <laughs> well, you know, and then people argue, well, maybe there's 10 to the 500 universes yeah. and we're in the only one that kind of supports mm. life. And that's mm. why and you sort of think, well, even that doesn't seem super satisfactory. 
So uh, those philosophical questions, I don't see a great way to solve. Mm. Um, there's other things that are kind of curious, like the universe is what we call flat. Um, yes. What does that mean? Universe yeah, I'm not flat. sure I'm the right person to ask about that. But <laughs> it, it, it's basically about how kind of light propagates and space-time bends and it can be... Um, it could have a value between sort of like anything and it happens to be right near one, <laughs> uh, yeah. which is kind of disturbing again. Like how does the universe know to propagate light and bend in certain ways? It's kind of like... Well, Can you bend light? Yeah, uh, it's quite easy. Um, so the light between you and me is actually bending in the gravitational field of the Earth. Mm. Um, not by very much. <laughs> um but as light goes past the Earth, it does bend slightly. It kind of, you can think of it as falling in the gravitational well or following the curvature of space-time. So light is bending due to gravity. Yeah. It seemed, it's sort of finding the shortest way between two paths. It's got this sort of magic properties. Um, can you travel faster than speed of light? No, <laughs> but you can travel faster than light does in certain charged media. So although the speed of light is like 300,000 kilometres a second, when light comes across electrons, it mm. slows down in the same reason our fast radio burst was delayed. It doesn't slow down by very much. But if you're a particle, you mm. can actually go closer to the speed of light, but you can never exceed it. But you might be able to go like point five zero is one percent faster than light in certain circumstances, but you can't kind of overtake light unless it's in this sort of hypercharged environment. Yeah. And and even then by like, you know, less than a nanosecond kind of thing. It's not you you wouldn't boast about it. Do you fantasize about time time travel at all? Um, well, it's quite interesting that if you take two clocks and you stick one on Earth and you stick one in space, the one in space ticks faster. Why is that? Relativity? Yeah, it's the, the amount of curvature of um, space-time determines how fast your clock ticks. Mm. But again, it's by a pathetic amount. But, you know, if you had an identical twin, you parked them mm. in deep space and came back after a thousand years or something, you know, you might be a few seconds younger. Or older, but yeah. if, if, if we're talking about, mm, yeah. If you turn gravity up to more exciting regimes, like on the gravity on a neutron star, then the clock ticks maybe a third as fast or as one in outer space. And then if you stick it near the surface of a black hole, the clock stops completely at what's called the event horizon. So... I'm a big believer in different rates of change of time in different circumstances. I think time travel is kind of crap <laughs> um, and probably doesn't occur. There's some interesting um, solutions to Einstein's mm. equation that postulate that maybe black holes can sort of tunnel to each other. I think it's probably not the case mm. but 
I'm not very romantic when it comes to my imagination on such mm. things. I'm a bit of a skeptic. Mm. Um, and people, oh, maybe if you go into a through a black hole, you'll come out in another universe. Well, you might, but you'd be dead anyway. It's kind of in there's no black holes anywhere near us to mm. go and test it on. So I, I think it's good for science fiction magazines, but mm. it's um, it's not something that. Uh, What's I think spe- happening. Speaking of science fiction, are you a fan of science fiction? And if so, what science fiction, like movies, television shows, books, what what are they getting right about science? Look, I am a fan of science fiction when it's kind of based on physics. Mm. I, I'm not at all into fantasy mm. science fiction or... On the lines of sort of Star Wars or something, yeah. <laughs> magic. Yeah. Um, but I love it when somebody comes up with a book and it talks about neutron stars and it's actually kind of like mildly accurate. I mean, I think mm. you always have to make it a little bit kind of bullshitty. Yeah, Otherwise, to make it well, <laughs> dramatic. The, the space between everything is so yeah. big that we can't ever actually get to another star during a lifetime. So there's this idea that you get in your hyperdrive and whatever, but if you suspend that disbelief. Mm. I mean, I was a big fan of... Um, Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, yeah. Not the original movie. That was like a shocker. <laughs> but the sort of post or the more recent series. The, the, the 2000 show. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that was an interesting <clears throat> show. It kind of went on a bit long. Mm. but A lot um, of people say The Expanse gets it right. Um, but I can't speak to that because I haven't seen The Expanse. But apparently a lot of uh, people out there say, oh, well, as far as science fiction goes, The Expanse is one of those shows that gets it right. Yeah, so I like science fiction when it's self-consistent. Mm. So it doesn't bother me too much if you can do a warp drive or whatever. Yeah. But, you know, you go, oh, yeah, and oh, cool, they're looking at a black hole. I know a bit about them and mm. things like that. But I hate it when they do stupid things and I think, well, that's ridiculous. Yeah. What do you think is the difference between black hole and a wormhole? Well, I don't... I mean, I think the black hole was an essential precursor to wormholes if they exist. Mm. But uh, like I said before, I don't, I don't hold much hope for wormholes. But mm. you know, they may, they might make for a better science fiction story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I always thought that if you could travel through wormholes, how would you navigate? Yeah, well, right. <laughs> <laughs> you'd hope. And, yeah, yeah. You know, t- it turns out most. Well, there's something called spaghettification. As you approach a black hole, your feet are getting pulled more firmly than your head and you get Mm -hmm. stretched out and you die. Um, So the only way to safely enter a black hole is to make it ridiculously big. Mm. And we do have some ridiculously big black holes in the universe, like more Mm. than a billion times the mass of the sun. Uh, I haven't ever done the calculation about whether spaghetti- you still get spaghettified or not. Mm, spaghettified. But it, but it may be that, you know, like, who knows, maybe I'm wrong and maybe they do get But how would they know to connect to which black hole? Mm. It's kind of like, I don't True. know. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, it's an interesting mathematical curiosity. Does it have any applications in the wider universe? Well, probably not. Mm. Do, you, do you think, where, where is society heading uh, do you think we'll actually be exploring space in spaceships like 100 years from now or 200 years from now when we're long gone? Or here's a better question. Imagine if humanity could get their hands on 
a technology, potential technology that could take us, that defies the laws of physics and that could take us to, you know, into deep space. How fast do you think the civilization would progress then? That's such a fantasy question. I know you're a skeptic, but still. Well, I might go back to your <laughs> colleague's question um, first. I think, you know, we've already explored the solar system. Mm. We've already had a the Voyager spacecraft mm-hmm. kind of left what we normally think of as the solar system. Mm. Um, and that took ages. Yeah. Um, you know, we could get to Mars, but living on Mars would be an agony. Yeah, it would be like, a nightmare. I think if you yeah. went there, you would be very depressed very soon and you would want to come home. And, you and then it would take you years home. to get back. <laughs> well, you probably couldn't get yeah, back. Probably, yeah, probably, <laughs> yeah. And the gravity is only about one third of what it is on Earth and that would be miserable and you'd just feel sick all the time and you'd think, why on Earth did I sign up for this? Mm. So I'm not at all romantically linked to trips to Mars. <laughs> um, you know, maybe somebody might want to do it. Well, certainly wouldn't be me. Mm. Um so I think, you know, we will explore our solar system. <clears throat> will we ever go to another star? Well, you would need multiple generations of people mm. to um, to travel there because it just takes so incredibly long. So I'm actually part of a advisory board to the Breakthrough Foundation and they're interested in sending a satellite to the nearest star Mm. But it, I think the payload is one gram. A whole spaceship can only be one gram. And they want to sort of nuke it with incredibly powerful radio waves and, and or microwaves and try and propel a sail to the nearest star and then one send gram. back a photo of it. And, you know, they're trying to get this thing up to 10% of the speed of light. And even then it will take 40 years to get there and four years to mm. signal back. So it's kind of... It's called Operation Starshot. Starshot. Um, that's mm. kind of fun to go to Stanford and toss around ideas about how this might work. Mm. It's incredibly challenging. But, it's... So I, I think, you know, we might do these micro-satellite payloads mm. to other stars. Whether or not you can, with one gram of instrument, get something that can even communicate back mm-hmm. is like an incredible challenge. Mm-hmm. So there's an idea that... Maybe you'll send a whole train of these things mm. and they'll oh. communicate with each other. Yeah, yeah it's sort true. of like a, what's called a daisy chain fashion. Mm. Yeah, there's some interesting ideas out mm. there. I, I'm actually more worried about whether or not we're going to blow up the earth or yeah. incinerate it or nuke it. or Before we even get before, to that, yeah. Before worrying them too much about <laughs> exploring other worlds. Yeah. As romantic as that is. Yeah. Wow. Um, blow up the earth. Do you think that's a possibility in coming time? How we're having wars? I don't. I didn't think I would see war in my time because I'm very young. But we've seen one this moment. Um, does that worry you? Oh, greatly. Um, I mean, I think there's there's a few worries. I think um, the internet is a big problem in mm. the way that it sort of connects. Well, it's given. narrowly focused individuals Mm. who are quite strange friends. Yeah. So we're all Mm. in a little village with 100 people. There might be one nutcase. Mm. The internet connects them all. Mm. And then the other thing is we no longer have media that cares about its reputation. So anybody can be a journalist Mm. in in some sense. 
So you've got people sprouting opinions and that kind of bullshit and it gets spread like wildfire and it's sort of like the foundation of our society used to be trusted knowledge and now we've got just ridiculous things being prop- propagated Propagated, around um so i think you know that's a major issue we've got people like putin rolling tanks into ukraine somewhat unsuccessfully thank goodness but you know what is the best way out of that you know maybe somebody with a big ego might not take defeat lightly maybe they'll want to kiev or something you know these are all kind of major concerns and then we've got CO2 being pumped into the atmosphere like there's no tomorrow, but there is a tomorrow and my children and grandchildren are going to mm. grow up in a world that's mm. going to have, like there's absolutely no doubt it's going to have like a ton more CO2 in the atmosphere. 100%, yeah. It's incredibly simple physics to show that, you know, light comes through the atmosphere at optical wavelengths. It gets absorbed and then it gets radiated again as infrared and infrared radiation has trouble getting through our atmosphere so it gets trapped trapped so i can't tell you exactly how many degrees celsius the world is going to heat but my suspicions is that the the forecasts are pretty pretty good and um the world is going to get hotter um but then you look at the media or Facebook or whatever and mm. people are not necessarily as concerned we've even got flagship publications like the Australian that have a whole bunch of Clyde and Niming right-wing zealots on their, you know, pouring cold water on any notion that we might be leading to catastrophic climate change. You know, I think these are all really major issues and I must say far more important than astronomy. Mm. What do you think is the solution for that? For Well, let's talk about CO2. Let's stick with one thing. It's... I don't think, do you reckon EVs is the solution for that? I've got a Tesla in your car park because um, mm. <laughs> I'm, inter- I mean, I'm just interested in technology more generally. Um, they, you know, they are an incredible car. Um, are they the solution to our climate woes? You know, probably not um, in the short term, in the longer term maybe. But if you look at a country like Australia, you know, we just can't, couldn't buy enough EVs to stop ourselves emitting for another 10 or 20 years. This is not the global supply of mm. cars. Mm. You know, we can't just turn off every car we own. We, we can do things like you know, build bike paths. I mean, I ride my bike to work. Mm. That's a far more greenhouse Green gas friendly way. I breathe out CO2, but it's not a huge amount. You know, that's a better way of being transported. And yet I take my life into my hands if I go down the main roads. I'm sort of fortunate the route to Swinburne University is is mainly on bike paths, but I've got a few hellish road crossings as well. So we're not really designing our our cities with infrastructure that is necessarily carbon friendly. Mm. I think, you know, you talked about electric cars. I actually think e-bikes are astonishingly good. They take almost no power. Mm. Um, we actually have an e-bike at home. It has a half a kilowatt hour battery, but you can go 80Ks on it. You still have to pedal a bit. It's sort of a mm. pedal assistant thing. You know, if there were fantastic bike lanes or, or bike roads or bike-only roads, mm. 
you know, maybe Melbourne would be a great. It, Melbourne's actually quite flat mm. by, by city standards. It, it's, you know, that could be awesome. Um, so I think you know we can be smarter about how we're trying to get rid of greenhouse gas emitting vehicles and things. But even in Australia, which is reasonably pro mm. green at the moment. Um, it's a massive engineering exercise to it like is. make the whole place electric only. Mm. The number of solar panels you need is like astonishing. There's no real solution to aviation in the you know mm. in the next ten years yeah. that's economically viable. And we've got like massive amounts of sun and wind and and so and we only have like. 26 million people like you go to India you've got a billion say, people but, um, yeah. in a reasonably small continent they're not yes. going to do it with solar like, uh, they're land not possible all so, the Asian countries the populations are so high that it's hard to even just think about anything but um, there's a trend of e-scooters uh, in Asian countries especially in India as well what, what I can think of and uh, there are lots of two-wheelers uh, people drive that instead of cars because of parking and because of there's so much population. I think uh, the trend, if slowly shifts to that, um, could be potential uh, downgrade in the g greenhouse gases. But still, looking at the population, I don't think this is going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, if you look at how much energy the average house uses... Mm. A lot of it is actually a car. Like a liter of petrol has thirty-four megajoules of of energy in it. And that's about ten kilowatt hours. Um, so, you know, swapping out all our cars for EVs is is one thing. Not using cars is even better. Mm. True. Um, working from home, you know, it's probably not a bad thing either. Although I love it when my staff come into work. Um, I like being with people and I, yeah. mm. I, I'm completely over Zoom after the pandemic. Mm. Um, so I think there's ways we can we can contribute. But I sort of have trouble seeing how we're going to say to India or something, oh, you, you've got to be carbon neutral. It's like, mm -hmm. whoa, you know, it's actually pretty hard with our land area and solar panels and just laying down the necessary cables and transmission mm. lines and... You know, it's tough for us. So like, what's it going to be like for them? I was like, oh, so th that does concern me. It does, yeah. Can I ask, what does a day look like in your life? How does a day look like, every day look like in your life? Oh, um, well, I sort of get up reasonably early. Mm -hmm. um, I ride my bike to work if it's not raining. Mm -hmm. um, I'm desperate for coffee, so I... I'm very addicted to Melbourne's coffee. Coffee, yeah. So I either go and get a coffee somewhere in Hawthorne or I – lately I've been bringing my own beans in from my own favourite roastery in North Baldwin mm -hmm. um, and I make a coffee. Unfortunately, I usually have a lot of emails to, to <laughs> deal with. Um, I'm also the director of something called Osgrave, which – has about 150 people affiliated with it. So we're trying to detect gravitational waves that arise from black holes and neutron stars in the distant universe. Mm. Um, so there's a, a bit of kind of like national leadership. There's a bit of scientific planning. 
I actually still do science myself. Mm. So I actually quite like using the tools we've developed over the last 30 years to try and discover stuff. I have about 10 PhD students based at Swinburne who work on Osgrave-related um, projects. Um, luckily, I share them with a bunch of other professors. Mm. But it's mainly about doing science, science planning. I'm very lucky that I'm the director of a centre of excellence because we get given about $5 million a year to fund our science oh. from the federal government and Swinburne throws in a bit of additional money. So I don't have to spend as much money trying to do what I call fundraising as the average scientist. So if you're in a centre of excellence, you get, they go, here, have $30 million and come back and see us in seven years and we might give you some more. If you don't, if you're not a member of a centre of excellence, you typically have to apply almost annually for grants and they're like 70 pages and you've got mm. to go on about what a hero you are and here's all my papers and... You know, I used to spend a lot more time on that, but I'm actually, I've been in three consecutive centres of excellence and that's meant I can actually do science. I think they're actually a fantastic way to fund science and it all, they're also very collaborative. So I've got, you know, about 20 other professors that we have a weekly meeting and we talk about our science and planning. It, I don't do much teaching anymore. Mm. Um, so... I'm lucky that I kind of bring in enough money that I get to do mainly science. science. And mm. I've also had a series of what's called research fellowships. So maybe 15 or 20 years of my scientific career has actually been funded just to do research. Mm-hmm. And then I, um, I'm also interested in what, STEM more generally, so science education. So at the moment we're developing a a tool we call OzView, which is Ozgrab's virtual universe. Mm. And the idea is that you can make this kind of virtual universe and then fly around it and teach kids about science, mm. but also display the equations that are behind that science. So that that's a kind of a fun project. Let, let me ask you this. Do aliens exist <laughs> or are you not allowed to say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um I think the the circumstances for what you might term the creation of aliens mm. undoubtedly exist in the universe and partly because there's about 10 to the 22 stars and maybe 10 to the 23 planets mm. um, in the universe. So the idea that this is the only place that has a sun-like star and a planet in a circular orbit about the right distance to have a combination of ice and water. You know, the, the, not, the chemicals that exist on Earth are not that special. Mm. They're just made in stars. Um, so there could well be life that was created. I think it's almost certain that there's things that reproduce, mm. whether or not they ever start understanding general relativity and mm. building technology that mean that enhances their life is very hard to tell Mm. if you wanted to look for aliens probably the best way to do it is with radio telescopes Mm -hmm. and so i was once part of something called breakthrough listen which was funded by a 
Russian billionaire, um, Yuri Milner. And he said, look, there's $100 million here to help people find evidence for alien transmissions, both in the optical and also in radio. Mm. And so they wanted to rent the Parkes telescope for five years to, for, to look for what they called narrowband transmissions, so little sharp lines in the spectrum. And they needed an Australian kind of co-investigator and so I got rung up in a Dubai airport of all places by the director of the Australia Telescope National Facility and he said, look, there's these guys, they're going to rent parks for five years um, they've got $100 million, they're funded by a Russian billionaire. Um, I need to know whether you're happy to be the kind of Australian face mm. of this project. And I thought, Russian billionaire, $100 million, radio telescopes, I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's actually very hard to, to find any evidence mm. at all that aliens have existed or do exist or are transmitting. It's very technically... It's not that hard for us to set up a transmitter that could easily transmit to the nearest star and say we're here. So far the searchers have not found anything. Mm. At the moment I'm more of an advisor to the project than a kind of active mm. participant, although we have had breakthrough funded people at Swinburne doing these searches. Um, it chews up a lot of power, it chews up a lot of telescope time. It doesn't always have your scientific colleagues smiling at you mm. and going, wow, that's a noble endeavour. They mm. go, I want to get back to what, you know, proper science. Yeah. But in some ways if you did find an alien, that would be one of the most remarkable discoveries ever. But if they were intelligent, it would be a little bit uh, scarier for us. I, th I think I read that somewhere, a quote, quote you said a while ago, that if we do find intelligent life, it would probably not end well for us. Yeah, I mean if... If they've mastered the, if they've worked out how to not destroy themselves, mm. the idea that they'd be exactly at the same stage of their technical evolution mm. as us is very small. Mm. On the other hand, the time it would take any alien to get here is so long, I'm not worried. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the nearest star is four light years away. If they could do 10% of the speed of, light with any kind of decent, you know, earth-killing infrastructure, you know, that's 40 years, I'll be 100. I'm not, not too worried. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh. um, has there any, has there been any moments or you've done discoveries or any phenomenons that left you in, in the awe that you've discovered that in over your career? Um. Well, I think I've read about other people's discoveries that I've been in awe of prior to actually being an active researcher myself. So the first time I kind of thought, wow, was um, probably watching the TV series Cosmos, which was way back in mm. the 80s and I was very young and starry-eyed, if you like. And I thought Carl did an excellent job of showing how there was a mathematical foundation to our understanding of the universe mm. and that was very reassuring for me. 
and it also got me interested in in becoming a scientist. When I started doing research, I remember picking up a paper and it talked about something called the millisecond pulsar. And I, I thought, what does that mean? And I knew that pulsars gave, rotated and gave off these radio beams and the first pulsars discovered by Jocelyn Bell rotated you know, maybe a few times a second or once a second or whatever. Anyway, the millisecond pulsar rotated 600 times a second. And I remember thinking, wow, that's phenomenal. Um, how can a neutron star rotate every one point, I think it was 1.55 milliseconds or something. You know, that's 600 hertz. That's incredible. It just, you know, that can't be the same thing as all these other pulsars, surely. But it was. And so I was really chuffed when I found my first millisecond pulsar because mm. eventually I became mm. a radio astronomer and wrote software and did surveys and started finding millisecond pulsars. So that was pretty exciting. Um, we found a ridiculously bright millisecond pulsar, which has been the subject of many kind of great discoveries. So that made me happy. But also when we found the Lorimer burst, that first fast radio burst, um, I really couldn't sleep. It was like, oh, my God, this mm. thing is just so amazingly different than anything we've discovered and maybe you could use it to weigh the universe and I just, like the the bed, I was at the Parkes Telescope when we found it and the beds didn't actually used to be that great. It was hard <laughs> enough to sleep as it were. You'd go home, go back to the quarters, it would be freezing. They used to have these woolen blankets and my skin's allergic to wool and I was like, oh, I was always a bit miserable anyway. And on top of that, I was like, oh, maybe this is the most amazing thing um, discovered in radio astronomy for decades. And, you know, maybe one day we'll win the Nobel Prize or something because of it, but is it real or not? And and so that, that actually left me in awe. And getting the Shaw Prize last week, it was like, yes. oh, oh, it actually was mm. great. Um, so that was that was probably the most excited I've been about an event. But I also remember the the time we found the second fast radio burst. Hmm. Um, one of my former employees, Evan Keane, had, had probably actually found the second fast radio burst, but it was sort of in the galactic plane. It was a bit unclear whether it was really a trillion light years away or not, or sorry, a billion light years away or not. It might have just been in our galaxy, it wasn't convincing in, in retrospect it almost certainly was and we did a survey with some friends of mine from like Germany, England, Australia and we did a big survey with the Parkes telescope and and we found about 10 of them and the very first one was was again a very high signal to noise event and it looked absolutely perfect and I remember being just overjoyed that finally we'd found another one and I think the student who found that, uh, Dan Thornton in the UK, was at the University of Manchester and I was just absolutely thrilled because I'd been waiting six years to, to find the next one and I was getting a bit worried that they weren't real mm. um, but but luckily they were. So that, that, that also made me excited. What, uh, what do you mean by real? Like what's the uh, origin? Well, a mobile phone is about one watt, roughly, in the strength of its transmitter. 
the Lorimer Burst was what's called 30 Janskis and um, a Jansky is 10 to the minus 26 watts per metre squared per hertz. <laughs> so <laughs> over the sort of gigahertz that we saw it, it's maybe 10 to the minus 17 watts. So a, a mobile phone, you know, 10 kilometres away is ridiculously brighter than any naturally occurring radio transmission by like factors of a billion or something. Hmm. So you can be fooled by what's called radio frequency interference, particularly if it doesn't have many signatures that enable you to separate it from all the other things. So electric fences give off sparks that lead to these microsecond-wide bursts. Any electrical equipment, computers, they're all just radiating this crap. Mm. And so we're trying to, like, dodge it. Mm. And, in fact, most of my skills, sadly, are not about doing great astronomy. They're about getting rid of interference. <laughs> That's like, like 90% of the skill Jobs, is just yeah. getting rid of in, maybe 99%. Um, the fact that the the camera we were using that day had 13 pixels is a great discriminator because you can say, oh, was it only in one pixel or was it in all 13? Mm. So mobile phones appear in all 13 beams. Uh, genuine sources appear usually just in one, but if they're loud enough, a few. Mm. So... I was terrified that there might be something at the telescope that gave off something which first of all radiated at high frequencies and then lower that would mimic a a fast radio burst. And it turns out, which is amazing, is that microwave ovens do that if you open the door while they're they're still cooking. So for whatever reason, the magnetron... Gives off high frequency radio waves and then low frequency, in a very swept way. It's it's not as perfect as a fast radio burst, but it's a little bit um, looks a bit crappier. But it, it's roughly the same signature. And so we actually discovered shortly after the the next sort of batch of fast radio bursts, we had about ten. And then we discovered that the microwave in the visitor centre, which is only 100 mm-hmm. metres from the dish, gives off fast radio bursts. It's like, oh, shit, <laughs> this is terrible. <laughs> and um, not only that, the what you might think of as this dispersion measure, how many electrons or whatever, mm-hmm. it just so happens the magnetron decays with almost a one-upon frequency squared delay mm-hmm. And so I just wondered whether we were just detecting different brands of microwave ovens around parks. Mm. Mm. And then our, our colleagues in America found one at the Arecibo telescope and I thought, well, maybe somebody's just got a different brand of microwave. But then eventually people detected them using multiple telescopes in different parts of the planet at mm, the same, yeah, time. same time. And it's like, oh, oh. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was at a talk in, in England and the lady who'd found this, the first radio burst in America gave this talk and she unveiled it at this meeting and I wanted to go up and hug her. I was like, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm so happy. <laughs> what, what do you think is the origin of these radio bursts? Yeah, so maybe only three years ago um, there was a burst of X-rays from a neutron star in our own galaxy and a fast radio burst occurred at the same time and it was mm-hmm. detected by two telescopes 
and it was so stupidly loud that one of the telescopes was only about 20 centimetres across and it still saw it. And so that was from something called a magnetar. It's a neutron star with a ridiculously bright or strong magnetic field. So some of them come from magnetars. Mm. They might all come from magnetars. But it might be that there's ways in the universe has of creating incredibly strong magnetic fields that are not associated with neutron stars that also create them. Maybe if you smash two neutron stars together, maybe you get one. Super. There's probably a few ways you can get impulsive bursts of radio waves, but I suspect the vast majority probably come from these highly magnetized neutron stars, but we don't know yet. So what we're doing right now is we're looking and observing out in the universe for these radio waves, radio bursts. We can receive them or can we send them out? Oh, yeah, we could easily send one out. Hmm. In fact, if you wanted to try and communicate with a bunch of aliens, you could pretend you were a fast radio burst source hmm. and that in the hope that they might study you. How would we know that they've received it? We wouldn't. We wouldn't, right? <laughs> unless they show up. <laughs> so it would be rather a disappointing thing mm. unless they wanted to send something back. But the timescales are in, like the nearest stars are four light years away, so mm. it would take at least eight years. Mm. For our burst to get there. And them to send something back. Mm. So eight plus eight or eight in total? Uh, no, just eight in total. <laughs> okay. But... Um, you know, you might be able to find planets and go, look, this one looks a bit like the Earth. It's actually really hard to find an Earth-like planet mm. a distance from mm. the sun just because most of the methods we use to discover planets is something called the occultation method, where you look at a star with a space telescope and if the light dims, you go, oh, that could be a planet going past. Mm. And then if it dims regularly, you can go, oh, yeah, this happens every 18 days mm. or 50 days. Unfortunately, as you get to Earth-like orbital periods of 365 days, the, the size of the Earth and the size of the star and their distance is such that the occultations have to be pretty lucky. Mm. And also you only get, you know, if the mission lasts three years, you only get like three orbits. So mm. it's actually pretty hard to find... Earth-like planets going around sun-like stars. How important do you think it is to link science to people? I think it's very important to show that, you know, people like Einstein came up with theories about how gravity works 100 years ago. Mm. And we can do experiments that show it's right. And so if a scientist tells you something... There is a foundation to it and you can test it. And if you have tested it and it works, it doesn't mean it works under all circumstances, but it means that there's a, a regime in which it works. And what we do as scientists is we keep doing more and more experiments and we keep trying to find regimes where it breaks. So Newtonian gravity works really, really well for like most mechanical engineering projects on Earth. If you want to build a GPS receiver and you try and use Einsteinian, sorry, Newtonian gravity and physics, it's it's rotten. So the time delays and the rate at which clocks tick 
above the earth requires Einstein's theories to work properly. So that's a nice example of, look, if we just said Newton's got it all worked out, we don't need to do experiments to show that gravity does anything else, we would, wouldn't have GPS. Mm. So I think it's important to show that, you know, well thought out, what you might term peer-reviewed science has a predictive basis that we should listen to. Because then when, you know, experts on climate or atmospheres or whatever go, oh shit, we're cooking the earth, um, they might go, well, you know, what evidence is there that science works? Mm. And there's a, an amazing body of evidence that science works. And respecting science, I think, is important for the future of mankind. I don't think a lot of the stuff I do has any immediate consequences for anything to do with the climate, but I hope that it raises a fascination in in science and the scientific method that helps reinforce all aspects of science, whether they be medical science or astrophysics. Astrophysics, but even social science research is also very important Mm. and probably something I didn't fully respect when I was a young, impetuous scientist, but having sort of worked with people in those fields, I can see that research in any area is actually important, as well as like understanding history. Mm. You know, I think there's lessons in history that um, we, we should take note of. Well, I think that's why our brains have memories, because we can learn and remember those lessons. Um, we know that the universe started with a big bang. Can you talk about that? Are we able to still see that light? I've, I was reading about this. I've heard it on a podcast that we can still see the light from the big bang. Is that true or? Yeah. Um, it's called the cosmic microwave background. Wow. And it's actually observable in the microwave part of the spectrum. And if you, if you have a big enough explosion a long time ago um, and the universe expands, then the radio or the way, the, the light that's traveling towards you gets kind of stretched mm. and it gets sort of less powerful, if you like. It goes to cooler temperatures. But you can also predict um, what's called the spectrum, how much energy is there at a particular wavelength. And maybe, I can't remember when it was, maybe 60 or 70 years ago, people trying to do radio transmissions were trying to understand why there was a background hiss Mm. when they were trying to get their radio receivers to transmit. There was always a background hiss that they couldn't get rid of. Turns out that was the afterglow of the Big Bang in the radio (laughs) spectrum. Wow. How did um, they find that out? Well, they probably talked to cosmologists that sort of said, well, actually, yeah, there should be something. It should be about this many degrees. It's actually about three degrees above absolute zero. And if you launch a satellite above the Earth and you look at the radio spectrum, it's just a perfect black body mm. spectrum. So the, there's a formula that tells you how much power there should be if you're looking at something of a certain temperature and there's a prediction and 
a curve just goes through it and it's just absolutely glorious and you win Nobel Prizes for it. So, I mean, I think that was that stunned me mm. um, that, it, it was, that it just agreed so perfectly. Because I think when I was very young, I just thought, oh, that can't be right. It's, it's a bit too magical. But so there is this afterglow of the Big Bang. It, what happens is that until the universe had cooled enough to form atoms, atoms mm. um, it was hard for light to travel without bouncing off mm. um, ions. But once it did, then the, the universe became kind of transparent. And so you can see back to about 300,000 years after the Big Bang, um, which is incredible. And you look at it and the spectrum is magical. It's just like this perfect black mm. body. But it, it also limits the point of making radio receivers ever more better beyond a certain point because you, you just see the microwave background. It's this hiss that's always present. You can't get rid of it. So we, we state-of-the-art radio receivers are about 18 Kelvin, but on top of that you get 3 Kelvin from the, the yes. background. So if we could make a, a 0 Kelvin one, which would be very hard, it would still be 3K because of the, the background. So, yeah, we can see the Or the technically background. here, the Big Bang. Well, if you put an amplifier into it, you know, it would sound like a hiss. But it, it would be a very boring hiss. Yeah. Um, the only other way to sort of see further back is to hope that gravitational waves were generated and be able to observe them or to infer things from the polarisation of the background radiation. Claims of polarisation were made and then later retracted. The gravitational wave thing is extremely difficult. I'm okay. not confident we'll get there in, in a hurry. We haven't really talked about gravitational waves. We haven't, yes. Please talk. Um, gravitational waves, how can gravity cause waves? Yeah, so it's interesting. The If you have a, a gas cloud, which is a certain temperature, um, it can't cool without giving off radiation. So if you wanted to make a, if you wanted to make like a planet or a star or something, you have to be able to get rid of heat. Otherwise, the heat keeps everything puffed up. Mm. Unfortunately for us, when an electron goes past a proton, it gives off a photon, which is light. And so if you have a whole bunch of gas with electrons and protons going past each other, it's radiating light. And that's good because that mm. takes away energy and it cools things down and it cools them to a point where you can form atoms and then ultimately humans. Mm. So we're very lucky that if you get two charged particles going past each other, they radiate light. Whew. So that's good. Mm. It turns out that often in physics, um, something that happens in the, in the electromagnetism has a parallel in gravity. So it turns out if you have two stars going past each other or a star on a planet, they give off a wave, a little bit like light, but it's a wave of gravity and it's called a gravitational wave. What um, significance do they hold? Well, if you, there's an equation that 
tells you how what the amplitude of the gravitational wave and how much energy. Mm. So it turns out Jupiter going around the sun, even though Jupiter weighs like 300 Earth masses and the sun weighs, I'm trying to remember the number, I think it's 300,000 Earth masses. Those two things going around each other radiated about five kilowatts, mm. which is not much. Because of that, in some ridiculously long period, um, because they're radiating these gravitational waves, they're taking away energy. And eventually that causes Jupiter's orbit to shrink. Mm. But it's, it's such a pathetic amount, it's imperceptible compared to other th things happening in our solar system which are far more powerful. So we can't see the effect of gravitational waves. It turns out if you get two neutron stars and you stick them in an orbit, say, eight hours, mm. they give off enough gravitational radiation that the orbit shrinks by three millimetres per orbit. Now, three millimetres doesn't sound very much, but if they're doing three orbits mm. a day, it's a centimetre a day, it turns out in about 300 million years they'll run out of orbital energy and the two neutron stars will be going only about 20 kilometres apart and they'll give off a burst of gravitational waves which will cause the whole universe to shake. And if you actually get a really powerful laser beam and you put a, a mirror at 45 degrees to it, <coughs> which lets half the, way, the light through and reflects half the light, and you bounce that light off mirrors four kilometres away and bring it back together, if a gravitational wave goes past, it'll actually stretch space-time in such a way that mm. the mirror will move by about one ten-thousandth of the width of a proton, of, of a uh, yeah, proton. And we can actually measure those kind of changes. So there's an instrument in the US called LIGO, and it's actually observing at the moment. Um, and it is looking for gravitational waves. And um, about once a week, the mirrors shake because either two black holes or a neutron star and a black hole or two neutron stars have actually merged somewhere in the universe. Can we track it where they are? Yeah, if you have more than one detector, you can kind of triangulate where mm. it must be. If you have three, you can nail it down to like a few dozens of square degrees on the sky. And in 2017, on the, what is it, the 17th of July, 2017, um, two neutron stars about 130 million light years away merged and both detectors saw the gravitational wave. The detector on the other side of the world in Italy didn't see it. The reason it didn't see it was it just had the wrong orientation so its mirrors didn't really move mm. with respect to each other. And that enabled us to say, wow, when this 30-degree patch of sky, two neutron stars just merged, it turned out two seconds later a burst of gamma rays hit the Earth. Mm. And so we knew that the speed of gravity and the speed of light were the same to like one part in 10 to 16 or something stupid, which is also amazing. Um, 
And the two neutron stars ripped each other apart and probably formed a black hole. And then they ejected a whole lot of material that was pure neutrons. Neutrons don't last very long. Mm. They decay into a proton, an electron, and an antineutrino. And they actually form all of the higher elements. So elements much heavier than iron are not made in stars. Mm. They're actually made by neutron stars merging. Mm. And so gold, which ironically the Shaw Prize is made of, is actually uh, made from the product of neutron star mergers somewhere in the universe. And so it's really nice that I now work on neutron star mergers and lead Australia's gravitational wave searches that are finding these neutron star mergers, and then I'm going to get given this prize made of gold, which was once two <laughs> neutron stars merging. It's yeah. kind of awesome, really. And it we can understand that. Life full circle. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, yeah. Wow. Jeez. Has there been time? What happens if those mirrors shake more than what you just said, the amount? Like if there's the gravitational waves are stronger, would, would that be a sign of worry? Because something close by happened, two neutron stars merged, and boom. Yeah, so... Unfortunately, these detectors are so incredibly sensitive that, like last week, there was an earthquake in Japan mm. and it was enough to rattle the earth enough that mm. we what, we did what's called lost lock. So we could no longer work out how many wavelengths of, of light were between the mirrors because the mirrors were shaking and stuff and you've got to, like, stabilise the mirror again. So every day and, like, maybe once a minute or something, the detector has some false event shake the foundations which are an issue for us. Hmm. So that just happens so often. It's, like, it's really frustrating but there's always what they call glitches and sometimes there's something stupid like a bird tapping on a pipe or something. Oh, or, and it receives the... In fact, the detector's range goes down on a windy day because the vacuum tube is four kilometers long is and the buildings are subject to wind and stuff mm. the new detectors we want to build in the future are going to have 40 kilometer arms and they're going to be able to see gravitational waves from the entire universe but they are so sensitive that if a cloud goes overhead mm. it causes them issues so isn't it frustrating that even though technology is advancing but we're still so far behind in terms of understanding what's out there does that frustrate you sometimes like well i i don't necessarily agree i think we actually have a remarkable understanding of the vast bulk of what's out there there are some big issues like we don't know what causes dark energy for instance we we don't know what dark matter is comprised of. Mm. And although I haven't explained what those are, one is something that causes the universe to accelerate. The other is if you look at how much gravity a galaxy has, it, it seems to have a lot more than it should just from its atoms. Mm. So, you know, well, that's a frustration. But I think we actually understand stars and galaxies and a lot of this stuff pretty well. So I'm... You know, whether or not we'll ever be able to tell or whether be able to tell whether 
as alien civilizations or whatever doesn't worry me too much. I'm kind of more worried about the earth. Mm. Well, what is dark dark energy and what is dark matter? Well, I don't know what dark matter is and maybe I'll have a sure prize if again if I did. But, <laughs> um, look, dark matter, the first evidence was seen in the 1930s when people were studying how galaxies were moving around each other. There's something called the Virial Theorem, which relates how heavy things are and to how fast they're moving. And they seem to just be moving too fast. They were gravitationally bound. They seem to be going very quickly. And they shouldn't have been. So a guy called Zwicky discovered that. And it was termed missing matter. Like, where's all the mass that's causing these things mm. to accelerate? Because we can't see it. Mm. Um so we've known that there's this problem of missing mass in the universe and unfortunately despite all of our great experiments that have ruled out all kinds of things as being the missing matter, we still have no idea what it is. Hmm. And there's various post postulated particles that might cause it or might not but none of them have a particularly convincing theoretical foundation that has lots of experiments that are, oh, you know, we've done these nine experiments and my new particle, you know, has been shown to exist and we just need to do one more. It's nothing like that. It's like, oh, God, we better keep testing all these things. It's one of the great unsolved mysteries in physics. But it's also a mystery that you're not sure whether you're like a month away from solving it or a thousand years. It's just a little bit frustrating like that. Dark energy was discovered by two groups, one of which... Australia's Brian Schmidt as one of the kind of co-leaders um, and they observed what they called standard candles so when white dwarfs collapse they give off a sort of a standard amount of light and so you can work out how far away they are by looking at how bright their explosions mm. are and Brian was part of a team that measured you know, in what galaxies at what redshift or how far away they are, how much light are we getting? And it seemed to show that the universe is accelerating faster now than what it used to. And we're used to thinking of accelerations due to a force and as you get further away from something, the acceleration should, should weaken. But instead it seems to accelerate. So space is being stretched faster now than what it used to be, which is like, also a little bit disturbing. So why is that? Why is it disturbing? Oh, I don't know. We live on the earth and we have perceptions mm. of we don't have any perception of space time being mm. stretched. Mm. So it seems all a bit magical that the universe is expanding at all. And then if you're told that no one is expanding, it's accelerating. So normally to accelerate something on Earth requires more energy. And we have something called the conservation of energy, which means if energy is conserved or neither created nor destroyed, the amount of energy is the same. So how do how on earth do you get something to use more energy later on? As per, you know, You'd like to think that maybe things are slowing down or something, but mm. they're not. And so that's also a great mystery. So I just have to check my telescope here. Please do. And something that... Um, Popped up, oh, hopefully. Said, hey, Matthew, congratulations on the award. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I was hoping he was going to say, why aren't you observing? The wind's dropped, but I don't think so. 
I was preparing for this podcast and I was sitting down and I was like, what question should I ask, Matthew? I was like, I don't know. And I just, um, I thought of one question I wanted to ask you before, um, Fief, before we wrap this up, maybe. What was your motivation to do this podcast? Why did you want to do this? Oh, I just <laughs> think we have a responsibility as public funded scientists to explain what the hell we do with all our money. <laughs> um, you know, you're a taxpayer probably and uh, you pay your taxes and the I government do, yes. gives yeah. still a reasonably small fraction by international standards. Mm-hmm. Like Australia doesn't spend a huge amount on research as a country and that's partly because private enterprise doesn't necessarily invest in in research Mm. like i'm i get an amazing amount of money from our government and i think the amount we spend on astronomy is ample like it's generous so astronomy is like a really well-funded sort of sub-discipline in australia and because of that we're quite good at it um and we can point to the odd thing like you know uh, Wi-Fi and stuff, and that's great. But I, I think scientists have a responsibility to explain what they're doing with all your money. But also if, if it can help inspire kids or whatever to yeah. do science or the public to get a better understanding of it, then I think that's also something we have a responsibility for. I don't actually like doing media day after day after mm. day. I. I like to do it in small little yeah. bursts and then get back to the lab. Yeah. And I try my best to not have these podcasts as interviews. Any guests I bring here, I just want to have a conversation. Yeah, just a conversation. And just pick yeah. their brains. What I'm trying to do is just ask questions because if you don't know what you're doing, maybe all you, the best thing, the best strategy you have is just ask questions. And uh, I just want to appreciate you taking our time and being here. So thank you so much for being here, Professor. It was quite an educational I was thinking, are there any other brains around the world that you think are changing the way people think in terms of astrophysics? Who are these other leaders or these brains out there? People you look up to, maybe your colleagues, people around the world? Yeah, so I think it's a curious mixture that you hear from the science educators much more than you do from your average scientist. And I think a lot of scientists aren't actually that great at explaining what they do. It sort of takes a bit of training. Mm. Um, But then there's other people that are just, they actually do a lot of homework. Mm. So I have a colleague, Alan Duffy at at Swinburne, and he goes on the media a lot, but he really prepares for it. And he's quite clever in the way he, thinks of analogies that will explain things to people. But it's not like like he is a sort of a natural at some level, but he, he does a lot of homework behind it. But he, he's rarely explaining his own science. So mm. I think it's good to hear from a combination of people like Alan who, you know, they're great at explaining stuff and he um, has a much better voice than me and he's Irish <laughs> and stuff. I mean, he's... <laughs> hard to compete with that um you know i think it's good to hear from people like that but it's also good to hear from just you know what i'd call more average communicators Mm -hmm. occasionally about what they're doing in terms of like who do i look up to i'm i'm probably 
more enamored by people that I just think are phenomenally clever, mm-hmm. but don't necessarily do much media or anything. And it's a bit of a shame that you know, some of them don't maybe spend more time or you can't appreciate them. But sometimes I go to a talk and I just think, oh, this guy's a genius. Um, and so I, I enjoy those people more, but I could understand why a lot of citizens mm. might think mm. they're not yes. that great at their, mm. their describing. Um, so who are these people? Uh, um, you know, it's interesting that you know, despite winning this prize or whatever, there's, there's so many astronomers and scientists I think of that are much cleverer than I am, but Astronomy is a bit of a combination of politics, luck, some niche that um, you're working in that is a hot topic. I think I'm very good at knowing what to work on, <laughs> but I know that there's people that once I sort of know what to do will do get to the answer much faster than me. Mm. So it's an interesting combination of kind of like leadership funding mm luck but also having a good nose for like oh actually that might be a good idea um i don't really want to single out any particular people but you know there's certainly like theoreticians that can do maths so much better than me that i i greatly respect there's people that just have a remarkably short time from making a discovery to publishing it mm there's people that are very good at writing and you read their papers and it's just clear what they're doing. And then there's others that just, a bit like me, got a little bit lucky and mm. um, were in the right place at the right time. But I think you only get to be in the right place at the right time if mm. if you're doing lots of work and yes, absolutely submitting lots of proposals and exploring bits of the universe in ways that other people haven't. You have to be in it to win it. Well, <laughs> if all you do is like mimic what other scientists mm. have done, you're probably not going to make great discovery. If somebody's mm. discovered a particular sort of galaxy and then you go and discover another 10, well, that's fine, mm. but they discovered the first one. Whereas mm. you sort of use a new telescope or a new type of yeah. radiation or you do something um, in a different way, you're more likely to to get lucky i guess mm. more sort of unique to you as as well i suppose yeah well i think there's um there's no substitute to dimensions of things i had a great mentor in the uk a guy called andrew line mm. and i remember there was a new type of neutron star that had just been discovered in a particular location and and we sort of did this theoretical calculation about where we mm. should look. And he just said, we're just going to look everywhere. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I'll just get more telescope time. We'll look everywhere. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting perspective. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, he was a remarkably successful scientist. Um, now I learned a lot from him about just like go big or go home kind yeah. of thing. Oh. Dan? Is there any questions that you haven't asked? No. I mean, there's a lot of information packed into this <laughs> podcast today, which I love. It's, um, yeah, no, that's it's been a good discussion. <laughs> Professor, is there anything you wanted to talk you haven't? 
Oh, look, maybe I'll come back another time and we can We'd chat love about that. We'd love that, absolutely. Something else. But, um, yeah, look, we talked about a lot and I'm a little bit worried my telescope needs some love and <laughs> I haven't had lunch yet, so maybe it's a good absolutely. time to, to yeah. stop. To wrap we'll, this up. Thank absolutely. you for coming in today. It's thank you so much. We appreciate you so much and uh, congratulations again on winning the show's prize. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Thank you.